Good morning, everybody. Welcome to GBC. I, um, I realize that I'm the main obstacle between you and fried chicken. Um, I know what I am, and I, I get it. I get what's going on here. Um, hey, thank you guys for leading. I, I met a guy in between the services, between the 9 o'clock and the 1045, and he told me that, that he and his wife and his daughter come uh, basically from Conroe to, to come to church at Grace Bible Church. And, and I was like, huh, you know, that's, that's kind of weird. And, uh, and I was like, why, why do you come that far to go to church? And, you know, like in my flesh, I was hoping he'd say something about these stunning insights from the pulpit, <laughs> something like that. Turns out he didn't. He was, he was like, we drew a 50-mile a radius around our home, and we wanted to find a church where we could hear the congregation sing. And this was it. So... It's, it's a ministry. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of cool. Um, it's, it's actually super cool. So uh, thank y'all. I appreciate it. And it, I'm, I'm not the only one who appreciates it. At least that guy does too. Uh, one other illustration, or not illustration, announcement, before uh, we turn our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Our, our hilltop adventure trips this summer uh, totally full, some with waiting lists, with, with one exception. We've got a trip May 22nd through the 27th. It's, it's a men's trip. We've got people from 24 to 65 years old signed up for this trip. Uh, it is a trip designed to equip people uh, and, and encourage disciple-making relationships. And so it, we are really focused on that. If you have never been on one of those trips and would like to go May 22nd through the 27th, reach out to me this week. We're, we're going to open it up to people beyond GBC in, in like two weeks. And, and so I, now's the time to let me know. I, I failed at the nine o'clock service to say that it was a whitewater kayaking trip. I, everyone, you know, gives me grief because it's, oh, it's all about whitewater. So I, I don't mention it. And then somebody in between services is like, yeah, I'd like to go on your men's retreat. And I feel like that's maybe a misleading deal. So it is a whitewater kayaking trip. And so you should know that. Uh, you'll get wet. We'll, keep, we'll bring you home, I promise. Uh, May 22nd through 27th. That's it. Let me pray, and we will turn our attention to 2 Corinthians 2, 12 through 17. Lord, you are so kind to us. It is, it is such a blessing to be in this room. It's a blessing to be part of the body of Christ and, and to know that we are all here to celebrate the redemption that you have procured on our behalf because of your son and, and all that he did to make our salvation secure and complete, lacking nothing. Father, I pray that we would celebrate that. I pray that we would celebrate it in song. I pray that we would celebrate it in, in studying your word. I pray that we would celebrate it when we're having fried chicken later today. I just pray that our lives would be marked by celebration and security and joy, Father. Um, help us to understand more of that, even in as we look at the paradox that is the Christian life. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A uh, long, long time ago, I used to do half Ironman triathlons. It, it was a ton of fun. I did it with a bunch of people who are here. Some are sitting in the front row. And, and the first one I did was called the Great Floridian Triathlon. It was the Great Floridian. It was in Claremont, Florida. And I I thought this is a perfect half Ironman triathlon to start because Florida is flat like Texas. And, and so if I'm training in Houston, Texas, no hills, 
I, I should find a half Iron Man that was flat and Florida seemed to be perfect. And so I went out there and the bike ride absolutely killed me because there was this, there was this hill on the bike course, 56 mile course. You, you did a, a two loops to total 56 miles. Sugarloaf sounds really benign, right? Sugarloaf thing was like this. The, the second time around, people like triathletes were walking their bikes up this hill. I, I had too much pride to do that, and so I, I, I powered up. But at the top of the hill the second time, my legs seized up. I, I almost came over my handlebars, and uh, like I was cramping both quads, both hamstrings. I got to the second transition area where you go from bike to, to running, and my, my running shoes were right below me. And I was like, I, I can't get to him. I mean, literally, I had to fall over and, and put my shoes on laying down. I had a 13.1-mile run to complete. It did not bode well at all. I did finish, which tells you something about me. It, mostly, I'm an idiot. Um, here, as you look back on that experience, I, I assumed that Florida was flat, and I, and I didn't train for any hills, and, and, and it was a bad assumption, and I, I I was left unprepared, and I cramped horribly. What assumptions might we be making today about Christianity that could leave us basically spiritually cramped? Like, what, what have we assumed? What, what have we taken from culture about the nature of Christianity that, that would leave us unprepared for the race that God has called us to? Turn with me, if you would, to... 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll start with verses 12 and 13. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them, and I went on to Macedonia. Okay, so I'm going to gloss this. We're not really going to cover it much. We're going to come back to it when we get to chapter 7. It will be several months from now. But but. Basically, the only thing you need to know about verses 12 and 13 is that this is yet another reminder that Paul's life is not easy, okay? So he's, he's worried about Titus coming to him because he's, he's in tension with the church in Corinth, and, and that's all you need to know. It's just another difficult thing in Paul's life that leads us, though, to a new topic, a new topic that Paul is introducing and verse 14, that's going to go for the next couple of chapters. Let's start with verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. But thanks be to God is, is a cue that Paul uses sometimes to introduce new topics. And I'm going to warn you right now, this new topic that he's introducing is a paradox. It's a paradox. Some of you might have had English departments in high school that betrayed you and didn't teach you what a paradox is. I'm trying to shore up your education. A paradox is a seeming contradiction. It's not necessarily a contradiction. It's, it's a seeming contradiction contradiction. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, is a paradox. It's a seeming contradiction. Now, now you might be thinking, well, how so? Why is that a paradox? Thanks, thanking God for leading us 
basically in a victory parade. That's kind of what the text is talking about. Doesn't seem like a paradox. Like if, if the Astros win a World Series like they did last year, a lot of you go running down to downtown and there's millions of people and evidently it's a lot of fun. To me, it sounds like a nightmare. But to each his own, like I'm, I'm for you doing that. You could thank God for that. You, you got invited into a parade, a victorious celebratory parade. Why is that a paradox? Most Christians see verse 14 as basically some sort of statement of our vicarious victory in Christ. Like he won the battle against Satan and we are adopted as his sons and daughters and and we are made secure and, and we get invited into his victory parade. And it becomes something like uh, triumphalism, like this idea that like, oh great, Jesus won, we're hit, you know, with him, we reign with him, we, we get rich, like this is wonderful, it's, it's kind of a, it gets into like a realized eschatology, like stuff that will be true later, all of a sudden we're trying to make it true now, and, and there is some victory, I mean there's a lot of victory in knowing Christ, so I'm, I'm not saying that's not true, I'm just saying it's not true here. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. This idea in verse 14 where it says, he leads us in triumphal procession. And that's, a, that's one Greek word. And it's a Greek word that is used all the time for when the Romans have a military victory. And, and so here's how it works. The Romans have a military victory and, and they come back into Rome and, and they bring with them the captured soldiers that were their opponents. They, they, they bring with them the people they conquered. And, and they parade them through the streets of Rome, sometimes for as many as three days. And, and those soldiers are humiliated and forced to pay homage to the general that conquered them, or, or, or to Caesar, or to the emperor, or whoever it is. And, and that's That's what it means to be in a triumphal procession. That's the word that is always used here. So those led in the triumphal procession are the conqueror's soldiers forced to pay tribute. That's Paul. That's the reference he's making. But if you look closely, he's not talking in the singular. He's talking in the plural. Look at the text. It's there. So it's, it's not just Paul, it's us. It's us. We're, we're the ones being led in the triumphal procession. We're the ones who have been conquered. That, this isn't triumphalism. This is almost the opposite. Now, why would God use this imagery? Why, why, would, God, why would Paul create this metaphor. Paul uses this imagery to remind us that we were enemies of God before God conquered us. That's not me exaggerating. Romans 5.10 literally says we were enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 says that we were followers of the prince of the air, which if you're just hearing that for the first time, you're like, well, that sounds like God. It's not God. It's Satan. We were followers of Satan, so much so that the next verse, Ephesians 2 verse 3, says that we were by nature children of wrath. Wrath. Let's just pause here. How much credit 
are you willing to take for your salvation? Do you think that you and God kind of teamed up to make like an unconquerable team? Is, is, is that what happened? Is, is that scripturally what happened? Scripturally, here's what happened. Your treasonous soul was defeated by God's love. That, that's how it works. Your treasonous soul, your rebellious soul was conquered by Christ, by the love of Christ. Hey, take Scripture seriously when in 1 Corinthians 7, 23, he says we were bought with a price. Ephesians 6, 6 says we are bondservants of Christ. That, that's slaves. We're slaves of Christ. Romans 6, 18 says we were slaves of righteousness. And of course, if we're slaves of righteousness, we, we've got to be slaves of Christ because before Christ, what were we? Slaves to sin. In fact, Romans 8 says the sinful mind is hostile to God. It cannot please God. It will not please God. It is death. And, and so there was no freedom then, but there's no freedom now. We went from slaves to sin to slaves of God, to slaves of righteousness. Here's maybe the point that we should be working toward. Freedom in Christ is different than freedom from Christ. Do, do y'all understand that? Because some Christians get that really wonky, right? They're, they're like, oh, I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. And they're like, what? And Jesus died so you can do whatever you want, so you can sin without impunity? Like, really? You, you think he mounted a cross to excuse you into more sin? That, that was his intent? No. Come on, y'all. You know better than that. Don't, don't abuse the grace of God. Free, freedom in Christ is different than freedom from Christ. You've maybe heard the, the term the prosperity gospel. I'm going to give you a, a new term. I, I, I want to direct your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. This is going to be our introduction uh, to a, something different. It's, it's called the poverty gospel. So you've, you've heard the prosperity gospel. It's terrible. Here's, here's Paul's gospel. See if you can embrace it. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 9 through 13. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Can you embrace that gospel? Is that, is that something you wake up going, I'm the scum of the world. Hallelujah. Because that seems to be what Paul is saying. Have we believed a different gospel? This, this is a paradox, right? A seeming contradiction. The world wants freedom, 
We are called to be slaves. The world wants to dominate. We seek to serve. The world values strength. God does his greatest, most profound work in our weakness. We seek the world's wisdom all the time. And God says he will use fools, which is super encouraging because at that point, I am perfectly qualified for ministry. I mean, like, that is encouraging. The paradox is that Christians gain life by losing it. That's something you need to embrace. The Christian finds joy through sacrifice. The Christian finds freedom through the God who conquers us. And that actually leads us right back to the paradox du jour. And let me just pause here and note that the use of the word du jour marks the fourth French reference in four weeks. (laughs) What is the world coming to? That's the question you ought to be asking. We could be seeing the beginning of the apocalypse. It leads us back to the paradox du jour. Why would we thank God for conquering us? That's that's what you should be asking when you read verse 14. Why would we thank God for conquering us? Verses 15 through 17 are going to continue the metaphor, but they're also going to give us the answer to the paradox. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 17. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Again, we're continuing this metaphor of of a triumphal procession, this, this, this idea that, that we are captured and conquered warriors who were former enemies of God. Here's why Paul would say, I'm so thankful. Our submission to Christ, no matter where he takes us, if you're still in the metaphor, is the fragrance of God that lets the world know that there is a king who is able to conquer us in our sin. Let me say that again. Our submission to Christ is the fragrance of God that lets the world know that there is a king who can conquer us in our sin. And, and so if you're following the logic here, if there is no submission, if there is no allegiance, there's no fragrance. You, you see that? That, that, that's what the world is always so concerned about, like hypocrisy, because there's no allegiance, there's no submission, and they're like, what's the big deal with Christianity? Because there's no fragrance. The world is saying, I don't smell anything. I don't smell anything. But when there's submission, there's fragrance, and Paul is ultimately thankful to God because he loves being the fragrance of God. Do you love that? Do you love knowing that every morning when you wake up as the redeemed of God, you have the opportunity to smell like Jesus? 
as you go into work, as you go into school, as, as you go into whatever you're doing on Friday or Saturday night, as you go on a date, you have the opportunity to, to smell like Jesus. Our, our submission, the text goes on to say, is, is odious to those who are perishing, like some people aren't going to like it, but it's the smell of spring to the redeemed. I love that. I, I love that it's the, the smell of spring, like it smells like new life. You've, you've met those people, right? Those are the people that, that convinced you actually to, to become a Christian. It, it wasn't good arguments. It, it was people who, even before they said, yes, I'm a Christian, you saw them and you said, there's something different. Like there is, there is a joy, there is a hope that transcends circumstances, there's an intentionality of how they're investing in me or other people that the world would not invest in. And you're like, there's something there. They smelled like Jesus. They, that's, that's what it is. They smelled like Jesus. And it's a joy to meet those people. Are, are you one of those people? Look at verse 15, the very first part of verse 15, because it actually tweaks the metaphor just a little bit. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. Not only are we the aroma of Christ or, or the fragrance of God to the world out there, we are the aroma of Christ to God. That's an unbelievable honor. In, in my first draft of my sermon, I, I said, what a tender thing to express. And, and then I had to scratch it out. I, Tinder didn't seem to work right. I, I wasn't sure if it was just the wrong word or if it's that dating app that like ruined the word for me. But like it is, it is such an honor when God sees us living in allegiance to him, we smell like Jesus. I to God. Can, can you imagine that, y'all? He sent Jesus to make us new creations in Christ, to, to save us from the pit of hell. And, and the reward, though, and I love this, when, when we're living in allegiance to him, he's like, that smells like my son. Like that, that sacrifice, that submission, the peace, all of it. It reminds me of my son. What an honor after what he has done for us that we might give him back that. My, my mom has worn the same perfume for 30 years, maybe longer. I've never asked her about this. She's here somewhere, and I'm, I'm not sure where. I can't see her. But the reason I know she's worn the same perfume for like 30 years is every once in a while for, on my way back from the office, I'll stop by my parents' house, and normally when I do so, either in coming or going, and sometimes both, if the conversation's gone well, I'll give my mom a hug. <laughs> and, and so then I'll go from there, and I'll, I'll go back to my house, and whenever I walk in, Mary, my wife, will say, have you been at, my, at your parents' house? And I never understood it. Now, Later on, I came to find out that she had me on Find My Friends. I had no idea. <laughs> but, but even before 
we had find my friends, she could always tell when I was at my parents' house, and it's because when I hugged my mom, like her, her perfume would, would rub off on me, and I smelled like my mom. That was not my intent. But it was nonetheless true. And here's what's weird about it. I didn't really know that my mom was wearing the same perfume all those years. I, I guess I just kind of grew up with it. So I'm, I'm sort of take that smell for granted. But Mary can tell every time. Every time I walk in the room, she, have you been with your mom? When we live in submission to our conquering king, especially if you're looking at the context of 2 Corinthians, especially when we suffer in our submission for his righteousness, for his glory, it reminds the father of his suffering son. That's cool. Like, if that doesn't get you going, you might not know Jesus. I'm just saying, that, that is super cool. Look, look at the last part of verse 16. Paul raises a question. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to be the, the aroma of Christ to God? Who is sufficient to be the fragrance of God to the world? Who who is sufficient? The, the word sufficient there, it's hikonos. And it, mean, it means sufficient. It's a great translation. It can also mean adequate. It can be competent. Who is adequate? Who is competent? Who is sufficient for these things? To, to be the fragrance of Christ to God, to be the aroma of God to the world. I, I think I switched those. Who is sufficient? Paul's critics, just to invite you into what's going on in the backstory, think he's too simple to be a real apostle. He, he's too simple. He's too plain. He, he's not real eloquent. He, he's not super profound. He, he doesn't look that impressive, and he suffers too much to be really blessed by God because people who are blessed by God don't suffer. That's their presupposition. And they look better. Like, if God's going to have an apostle... It's going to have great hair. That's why I'm not an apostle. See that? See what I did there? In short, they're saying we don't believe Paul's an apostle because he's short, because he's normal, because he suffers too much. Verse 17 is his response. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. I love this. The key to the kingdom isn't slick. It isn't religious hucksters. And by the way, aren't we kind of tired of, of people who's talents outpace their maturity and they have this meteoric rise and then like crash and burn story like why do we keep buying into that why why do we continue to be surprised by that form of christianity promoted by the uber talented who lack maturity now 
See, the kingdom of God, according to Paul, is manifest. It's demonstrated not by the slick, but by the sincere. Do you see that? It's right there in verse 17. Look at it again. Not by the slick, but by the sincere. Sincerity, this word I looked it up, sincerity as an act or as an expression of pure, unadulterated motives. It's the definition of that word. Unadulterated motives. Sincerity rooted in a passion to proclaim the gospel. Sincerity rooted in a passion to demonstrate the glory of God in a world that so desperately needs it. Sincerity in a passion to represent Christ before the Father that he might smell his son. That's what the kingdom is built on. This text isn't really about heroism. It's just not. It's about sincerity. That, that's what it, it drives to. Sincerity. It's about guys like Seth Adams. Some of you know him. You, you know what's great about Seth? Seth will probably never spend a lot of time up on a stage. It's just not how God wired him. But, but when your dog dies and it's raining outside, Seth will come over and, and dig a grave for your puppy even though you didn't ask him to. That's sincerity. It's not just Seth, though. It, it's really not. It's all the people at Grace Bible Church who refuse to quit on difficult marriages because they made a vow. They, they stood up before God Almighty and said, I promise to love, honor, and cherish till death do us part. And they understood that there was a period at the end of that sentence it wasn't a comma unless. There, there wasn't it. It just wasn't there. And they're like, I get that it's hard, but I'm going to keep showing up. We're going to figure it out, and I'm not going to quit. I refuse to break the covenant that I make. You know, you know what those people smell like? You should be able to get out ahead of this. Jesus. This text isn't about heroism. It's about sincerity. It's about sincerity in the day-to-day. -day. It's about sincerity in the mundane. It's a single-mindedness that, that makes people consistent. That's what it's about. But when you see sincerity in the mundane, when you see, see sincerity in the day-to-day, -day, you should know this. That's where heroes are born. It's not about her heroism. It's about the consistency that enables heroes when the day they're called to be heroes. Figure it out in the day-to-day. -day. God will take care of the rest. Let's pray. Father, this whole idea that you are calling us not to be uber anything, but sincere. That's so encouraging, Lord, because we can be that. All of us can be that, regardless of our gifts, regardless of, of, of where we are in life. All of us can be sincere, and that's what you use. And so, so that is, that's such an encouragement, Lord. But, but Father, it's also a challenge. It, it bears incredible weight 
because we are fickle and we we all have mixed motives. And Father, I pray then that you would purify us. I, I pray that we would be singular in our devotion to you, your gospel, your glory. I, I pray that all the other stuff that we do would, would build up into that. And I pray that our consistency and our sincerity in the mundane would be used for your glory. Father, I, I pray that we would not be ashamed of the fact that we were conquered, that we, that we are slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness, that you bought us. Father, help us to show the world what your son smells like. And, and I pray that as you look upon us, we would be a sweet fragrance before you in response to your gospel, empowered by your gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.